Well, let's have a moment of prayer as we think about Father's and Father's Day. Father's Day. Gracious Lord, as we come here, uh, the, the thing we have is the greatest Father in you, God the Father. And it's up to us to uh, look into your fathering, to uh, be open to your fathering, to receive from you your fathering, to be nurtured by your fathering, to sense and uh, know the strong arms of the Father around our lives. And so as we think about that today, I pray that you become just another notch more clearer for us as we rest in the fathering of God the Father. Amen. Gentlemen, I wonder if you've thought about the difference between your spouse's experience of having a child and yours. You know, she's already got to know the baby while you are still waiting to get to know the baby. Because mum's had nine months and the baby's been turning and kicking and she's got that f closest physical connection because the baby is inside her. And she's also connected to this baby via morning sickness and heartburn and frequent toilet trips and the stretching of bodily parts and so on. And so when mum welcomes the baby born after nine months, she's actually welcoming the closest of friends. And it's like mum already has a pretty good idea of who this little person is. But dad, as empathic as he may be, is still really only introduced to that child at birth. You see, fatherhood doesn't begin at conception for dad so much as it does at delivery. And at the delivery, Dad has to look at this wonderful, wonderful little person and say, I am going to be your dad. And that sets a whole lifestyle of fatherhood in motion, which is just many, many decisions which you make because now you're a father. And it's actually quite common for dads to not really take it all that seriously, not realise their life has actually changed until they hold that baby and meet it for the first time. And at that point, they have to make that decision to be the father, to take on a fathering role. There's a fellow called Stephen Covey who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he says that all day across the working world, fathers drive home from work and some make that fathering decision and some sadly don't. And he says that the wisest thing is to use that drive home to make the decision to once again to adopt your children, to be the dad, to mentally go through the process of taking off the work hat and putting on the father hat. Mentally go through that process, whatever it means to you, to resign from work and volunteer to be a father. Well, the Bible's got many examples, sadly, of bad fathers, hasn't it? Fathers who did amazing things for God and yet they didn't do fathering well. But there is one father we've come across in our Wednesday Bible studies in the book of Esther who struck me as an amazing father and it was Mordecai. And the reason I, I highlighted what I said just now about fathering requiring a choice is that although Mordecai was not Esther's biological dad, he did take on the father role. He took on the father job of his cousin, Esther, 
or Hadassah as her Jewish name was. And Mordecai fathered Hadassah. He decided to be a father. Well, somehow, in the great consequences of events, this little girl had been left with no father or mother, and he could have said, well, gee, I'm not a good dad. I'm not a good potential father. He could have said, I'll find somebody else. He could have said, well, let's send her off to Jerusalem. But something in him said, I can raise this child. I can grow this person. And he made a decision to be a dad. We see that in the book of Esther. Chapter 2, verse 7. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her mother and father died. He had chosen to be a father. And good fathers do that. They keep deciding every time they come home to be fathers. That's what Mordecai did. And we're going to check out Mordecai's story a bit more and look for any other fathering tips we can find. So firstly, what do you make of this verse? Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. And one of the jobs of dads is to be aware of the world situation enough to see pitfalls, to see opportunities and to provide guidance which protects the children. And Mordecai was far-sighted enough to make sure that she kept her ethnic background a secret. It probably wouldn't have prevented her from being selected as a candidate for being queen but it certainly this decision made it possible to keep Haman, the villain, completely in the dark until the moment to strike was revealed. And Mordecai had read the times and he had read the circumstances correctly. And note the strength of his leadership about this point. He was willing to be tough on this important security issue. He wasn't the sort of leader who watches where the kids want to go and then runs out in front and says, hey, I'm your leader. No, he clearly stated the boundaries that he saw. And Hadassah did what she was told. She followed Mordecai's leadership. What about this verse, 2 verse 11? Every day he walked backward and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Well, obviously, he didn't have enough power to prevent Hadassah being recruited by the king's forces as a concubine with the possibility of becoming queen. He didn't have the credentials to pass into the palace where Hadassah had been taken. He didn't have a cell phone. He didn't have email. He didn't have snail mail, Bluetooth or Wi-Fi. So he could have stayed at home, breathed a big sigh of relief and said, Oh, thank the Lord, my parenting days are over. But... He was obviously devoted to his adopted daughter. He loved her and he hated the thought that she was now out of sight, away from his protection, so he did the best that he could. He loitered as close as possible to the harem as he could, hoping to get tidbits of information from people going in and out of the palace, snatches of conversation mainly going over the walls. And when... 2 verse 15, the next thing. 
When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And that verse is particularly telling for me. You see, Hadassah respected the new authority she was under. And that tells me she'd experienced good fathering because people who have experienced good leadership trust leaders. They trust their leaders. You know, kids can tell when their leaders have their best interests at heart. Kids can tell whether dad only disciplines them so they can watch the footy in peace and quiet or whether dad is really interested in them getting a good sleep so they can do well at school the next day. And Hadassah trusted the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem. She didn't think, oh, well, what would he know? He's a man. I've got better fashion sense. I can do a better job of my makeup than last year's. Oh, that's so out of fashion. Now, I heard recently and was confirmed by my wife that one of the main reasons women make themselves look beautiful is to impress other women. I don't know about that. <laughs> it's a bit of a revelation to me. And don't quote me on that. <laughs> But maybe Hadassah was really enlightened because she was trusting a man to know what would make her appeal to a man. Don't make that gospel that point. 2 verse 22. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. What do you learn about Mordecai from that verse? He was honest. He was unafraid to tell the truth. And he had backbone. He was a man of integrity. And he wasn't afraid of the scary big Thana and Teresh, two bouncers who guarded the doorway. He was happy to reveal their plot to assassinate the king. And I'm betting those guys were pretty scary, that they were chosen for the job because of their imposing presence and their don't mess with us, mate, type of persona. You see, good fathering requires some backbone, doesn't it? It's important to notice that it doesn't require the same backbone you use in a footy match. It's not about using the big muscles. It requires things like honesty and willingness to speak the truth in love. And fathers, please observe that telling the truth at work is not the same as telling it at home. And indeed, it's very important to take off many of the skills you use at work and put on different skills at home. You know that gruff voice you use in a workshop, that use of the power of your badge, your position as maybe the foreman, or that my way or the highway, mate, that just being competitive, that uh, dominates your opposition attitude from work, that shouldn't come home. The power you use at home is character-driven power. It's the power by which you develop meaningful and fulfilling relationships. And it's words like warmth and sensitivity and listening and hearing and dependability and quiet, genuine compassion and affection and a caring. Those are the things which work in the home. Move on to chapter 3, verse 2. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. 
So now we're seeing that he really has amazing backbone. Not only is he not afraid of the scary bouncers, but he's not afraid of this guy Haman who's been given the seat of honour higher than all the other nobles. He's a man of power. And although God is not mentioned out loud here, one of the main reasons he doesn't bow down is because of his Jewish faith. You remember those Ten Commandments back in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4? You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. And then this important next line, you shall not bow down. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Mordecai was not going to bow down to a human being for he was a good Jew. Only God gets the bowing down. He was a man of faith, a man of conviction, which gave him backbone. And this is the amazing challenge to fathers, isn't it? To live out our faith in the face of opposition. Sometimes it will come from outside the family. Sometimes it will come from inside the family. You know, Mordecai didn't know what the consequences would be of refusing to bow down. He didn't know that Haman would get so angry about it that he would determine not just to wipe him out, but to wipe out all of his, his relatives and all of his nation. And we don't know either what will happen, not just to us, but also to our loved ones when we stand up to the devil's schemes. And make no, make no mistake, in the spiritual battle for souls, the enemy is not just after us, he's after your whole family. What Mordecai did know was that he wasn't going to bow down to Haman because he only bowed down to God. And he completely trusted in this God to whom he was bowing down. And what we should know similarly is that we aren't going to bow down to the enemy's schemes. And we aren't going to bow down to the temptations that are placed in our path. We are only going to bow down to God. We're going to trust our God's capacity to look after us and lead us in a good path. Because little eyes are watching fathers. Little eyes need to learn how to live courageously for their faith. They need to see dads who genuinely love the Lord and live for him, that they may know how to love the Lord and live for him. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. Now, the way of grieving in that part of the world and... That time is not the same as we do it. At our funerals here, mostly quietness and solemnity is the order of the day. But it wasn't for Mordecai. He was willing to put it out there publicly. He put on sackcloth, more accurately uh, hair cloth. It's usually made of black goat hair and sometimes camel hair. And There are no definitive designs for the clothing, but it would be safe to assume that it was not high fashion and it was probably not, nothing more than just a sack with head and armholes. And the ashes, they were just ashes, they were put in the hair over the clothes. You could, perhaps as a side issue, you could co conjecture about whether Mordecai realised that 
his refusal to bow down was the cause of this edict sent out to destroy all of his nation. Uh, that would be a bit like closing the gate after the horses bolted. What we have is that Mordecai had a problem. It was an enormous problem and he was very open about it. And fathers can learn from that. Because most, most men find it hard to share when they have problems. They tend to go off alone under a rock and think it through. They tend to put it on a brave face and be stoic and tough it out. They tend to carry their burdens alone. But fathers who follow Mordecai's example know the need, as it says in Galatians 6.2, they know the need to carry each other's burdens. Carry each other's burdens. And in this, in this way you will fulfil the law of Christ. You see, fathers need to talk with other fathers about fathering. They need to talk with their spouses. They need to talk with their children. They need to plug into the whole Christian community to be the best fathers they can be under God. Because, you know, a burden that you're carrying, which is hidden away because of shame or whatever reason, is a burden which can't be shared. And healing does not happen in darkness. And healing does not happen if there's denying I've got a problem. And it happens when secrets are brought into the light and shared with others. In chapter 4, verse 4, when Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. I'm just thinking, I'm going off book here, thinking about this solution from a woman. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth made me realise how important clothes are to the girls. <laughs> anyway, Esther is in great distress. And that tells me that Esther loved her cousin Mordecai. She hated the thought he was in such pain and she did, on the basis of what she knew at the time, she thought, oh, I'll send him something to cheer him up, I'll send him good clothes. And, and think about this, part of the reason Mordecai is mourning as close as possible as he could to the palace was he was hoping, I think, that someone would see him and get the message through to Esther. And that's indeed what happened. The eunuchs and the female attendants told her about Mordecai. He's out there, he's in sackcloth and ashes. And what did she do when she heard that? It distressed her. Because she loved Mordecai. And she was still deeply committed to his leadership even though she was now a queen because Mordecai was, after all, still her dad. And that bond between a father and daughter is deep and enduring. It's a holy trust given to a father and it calls him to be the best dad he can be for his little girl's sake. So communication occurred and when Esther finally understood the entire situation Mordecai did an incredibly important thing he challenged Esther to be her best he challenged her to be her best you've no doubt seen a situation where the little girl seems to have dad wrapped around her finger well I don't think Hadassah had Mordecai wrapped around her finger I think he expected the best from her all through her upbringing and the researchers say that girls who go on to achieve significant things in their lives usually have a father who challenges them to be their best. A father who doesn't let them fritter their life away. A father who leads them to pursue their strengths and strengthen their weaknesses. And when Mordecai let Esther know 
that she was there for such a time as this, he was issuing an amazing challenge, a life or death challenge. Life or death, whether or not she took it up and went to see the king because Mordecai pointed out subtly that uh, she'd still die if she did nothing. She wouldn't be spared just because she was a queen if someone found out she was a Jewess. But he wasn't patronising and he didn't consider her the weaker sex. He didn't pamper her and tell her, oh, it'll be all right. He believed in Esther's capacity to step up to the plate and take a swing at that curveball. And I think Mordecai's parenting had instilled courage into Esther. She, or he believed she could do it and that fostered her believing she could do it. She took him at his word and then she equipped herself with all necessary spiritual preparations, three days of fasting and prayer. Look, we see that in 4 verse 16. Go together with all the Jews who are in Susa, uh, go, yeah, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is gone, done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. To me, they, they are holy words of total commitment. Very humbling to see that. Respect. And then Esther followed through. We learn something also a bit more about Mordecai from 4 verse 15. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Once again, confirming the faith of Mordecai. Notice he's not worried about whether the Jews will be delivered or not because he knows God will not let his chosen people perish. But he also sees with perfect clarity that Esther has been placed in exactly the right place and the right role at the right time to be God's instrument of deliverance. And his faith is passed on to Esther and she stepped out in faith. Now there are a couple more things to note about Mordecai's fathering character and that is his true religion. In James chapter 1 verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts and pure as faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You see, the story starts off. Mordecai is identified as somebody who looks after an orphan in distress. That was his cousin. She was an orphan in distress. And then at the end of the book, we see he's still the same guy. He's still caring for people and now for the whole nation. If we go to chapter 10, verse 3, Mordecai the Jew, second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people. And he spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. True religion. Mordecai's character remains the same even when he's promoted to the second most important person in the kingdom. He's still working for the good of his people. Now we, we all know guys have got promoted and either sometimes they change or because we didn't get promoted we look at them jealously and we think that they changed. 
But Mordecai manages something very rare. He got both promoted and he was still held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews. See, the same guy who didn't kick up a fuss when he wasn't rewarded for revealing the plot against the king, but was patient and humble. The same guy who didn't do it to big note himself or advance his career, just simply did it because it was the right thing to do. He remained the same guy when he became 2IC in the kingdom. And he wasn't promoted to be 2IC because of his great skills, really. We don't hear his, about his daring do. We don't hear about his uh, capacities. What we do hear that he was promoted because of his trustworthy character, his integrity, his true religion, shone true. And that character was applied both to Xerxes and to the Jews. We've got to consider that as 2IC, he was a big part of establishing stable government in the Xerxes-conquered territories. And so when, when we read that 10 verse 1 where King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to his distant shores, we think this is a phase of the kingdom building. Xerxes has gone out, he's conquered things, and he's settled into the consolidation and management phase of the kingdom which needed to be organised and trustworthy people needed to get the taxation system set up and functioning Mordecai and uh, functioning effectively and Mordecai must have had a big hand in that. We all know that the Jews have renowned business skills, don't we? Well, let me give you a dad's story to finish. Well, this fellow who says, 50 years ago, my dad and mum gave me a new Bible it was my senior year in high school, the first week of two-a-day footy practices. Well, I wouldn't be footy, it'd be gridiron. And I crawled home that day bone-tired and mum had made a special dinner for me. It was my birthday. Dad gave me a Bible and in the Bible he said, Bud, nothing could be greater than to have a son, a son who loves the Lord and walks with him. Your mother and I have found this book, Our Dearest Treasure. We give it to you. And doing so can give nothing greater. Be a student of the Bible and your life will be full of blessing. We love you, Dad. And this verse from Philippians in it. Being confident of this, Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And Bud says, as I read those wonderful words from 50 years ago, it never occurred me to, to me to think, Dad doesn't really believe that, it's just religious talk. I knew he meant it because I watched him live it. He was a student of the Bible and his life was full of blessing and I wanted that. It took me a few years to get clarity in some ways, not surprisingly, but... On this day, so long ago, my dad said something to me that left a deep impression. It moved me then, and it moves me now. You know, at Maka, we've had fathers in the faith. We've had Mordecai's character. And in a bit, I've asked Hayden to lead us in his song about his granddad, Mr. Percy, to remind all of us of the fathers who've gone before us here and hopefully inspire all fathers to be such a father 
themselves. But before he comes, let's pray. Lord God, we're humbled by the example of Mordecai. We're even more humbled by your example as our father. And we just want to be open to receiving what we need, which is lacking in our fathering, to be filled up with your fathering today. To be inspired, to be realigned with you. So we ask for your blessing, the blessing of our Father. Amen.